Welcome to the Psych Experience. So this should be the third episode on refractory symptoms, um, and this one is about resentment. Is that correct? Yes. Um, uh-huh. So let's think for let's think about depression for a second. Um, so there's no such a, there's no such a thing as the depression or my depression, uh-huh. right? So depression doesn't exist as a thing or an, an, there's, it doesn't exist as an entity. It really only exists as a presentation or, you know, if you will, a collection of behaviors. And that collection of behaviors is quite randomly grouped, as, as I think we may have discussed before. Um, but uh, we'll leave that aside for a second. Okay. Uh, what, do you, what do you mean by depression is not an entity? So, like, depression is not... Uh, oh, boy. Okay, so here's an example we use uh, in the mentorship program to address this thing. Let's think of the entity uh, alcohol intoxication, okay? Mm-hmm. So there's a clear etiology to alcohol intoxication. We know exactly what caused alcohol intoxication. But the presentation can vary from person to person. And even the same person may have, like, a different presentation in a different day. Uh, you know, in different times that he got drunk or she got drunk, whatever. Mm-hmm. So... Um, like in one one situation, you can get all brave and contentious and want to fight. In another one, you're going to get all teary and love. You're like, oh, man, I love your kind of drunks, <laughs> kind of drunkness. My, right? my kind of drunkness. <laughs> Is that? That's I yeah, like that's to the, see. That's that kind, of, uh, that kind of guy, yeah. <laughs> so that's good. That's good. That's, that's my favorite, too. Um, uh, so I guess the point is we know exactly, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's happening and you can get all down and depressed or all boisterous i love this word boisterous always boisterous <laughs> anyway what we have here is an identifiable entity and that's alcohol intoxication and it, the same entity has different presentations um so we like everybody like people listen now we all had clinical encounters where we were we, we would ask ourselves after the encounter was over was my patient drunk or high? Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because there's no meaningful degree of precision when it comes to the relationship between intoxication and presentation, or, or um, except, except maybe when the intoxication is very, very heavy, like when you can barely stand because you're drunk. Because ah, that guy's drunk. And the opposite is also true. Okay, so mm-hmm. we can have different entities with the same rough presentation like recalling that our diagnostic criteria are indeed pretty rough descriptions of people like no there's no magnifying glass in this process diagnostic criteria has a very low resolution view of whatever people are struggling with and again this is not a destructive criticism it's just an effort to understand the tool and the limitations and of course i'm talking about the sm mm-hmm. so to, to to give an example um um, we can look at uh, major depressive disorder and major li- and major depressive disorder because uh, they have like a huge overlap of symptoms, right? We we saw before that uh, like you need five symptoms for MDD. Four of those also are you can find on generalized anxiety disorder diagnosis. Right. Uh, I think we saw the same thing about uh, uh, ADHD and generalized anxiety disorder. How restlessness and inattention are part of GAD and ADHD is just a collection of those things, mm-hmm. um, like b- behavioral equivalents. And we also know there's a huge difficulty making a distinction between schizophrenia and, and, uh, or psychosis and uh, bipolar uh, with affect- affective symptoms associated with it. So th- I guess the final point that I'm trying to make is that 
it's very reasonable to expect that different unknown entities could present as major depressive disorder, considering that all we need is the report of those symptoms or observation of those signs that you know entail the syndrome. The syndrome. Um, so you can have someone going through bereavement to meet criteria of a major depressive disorder. Mm -hmm. You can uh, have someone who's brokenhearted. You can have a malingerer who needs a place to sleep. You can have a hangover of cocaine. Uh, you know, someone goes out and beans on cocaine for a couple of days and then they present as depressed, um, whatever, depletion of uh, neurotransmitters they have in their brains, whatever. We can have people with severe trauma present with symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder because PTSD and generalized anxiety disorder are not mutually exclusive. And you can have someone with a COPD or migraines presenting as generalized anxiety disorder because if you have one of those, you know, it sucks and is, you know, very anxiety provoking. Yeah, but uh, randomized control trials don't 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 take that into account, right? They don't. No, they don't. And in, in other words, how you got here and how you ended up presenting this uh, low resolution uh, syndrome is irrelevant. Right, and could that account for the questionable results of antidepressants in general? Ah, uh, we don't know, right? Hmm. Meaning we could we could test antidepressants against reactions to life events, mm -hmm. right? And maybe instead of grouping people by their reactions, meaning instead of grouping them into major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, we could group them by identifiable causing events, no matter the presentation. You know, it doesn't mm -hmm. matter if you lost someone. Uh, let's say you lost your job and you're pretending more, you're pre presenting as a generalized anxiety disorder or a major depressive disorder, right? It doesn't, let's say, and then we throw meds, uh, you know, um, we, but we usually, we re disregard that for the, the sake of selection of patients and, you know, the, the randomized control trials just throw meds at them. Yeah, <laughs> and then we conclude antidepressants are effective for, the, uh, for job loss. Huh? But not broken heart, right? <laughs> Listen, psychiatry, man. Psychi well, you know what? Let's focus on the positives today. <laughs> yeah, let's try not to get too dark in here, right? Um, agree. So back to your point. Uh, there is no cause being treated. Yes, certainly not with meds. But the point is uh, we, we're just looking at a presentation. We have no clue of the etiology. When, when it comes to persistent depressive or anxious symptoms, as a medical analogy, we can have, okay, here's the thought. We can have multiple causes of abdominal pain, completely different pathological entities that will present as the same thing, abdominal pain. So as we have made a case for uh, histrionic traits leading to those presentations, today we will make a case for resentment. Yep, perfect. Mm. So to start, I'd like to say that this is a, this is a fairly testable hypothesis, meaning you can actually get to work today. People listening to this thing, they go to work as they have patients with a long story of persisting depression or depressive symptoms and anxious systems, uh, symptoms, multiple medication trials and failures. Now, we, we are all very good at telling when someone is resentful towards us. We can tell. Looking at someone, we can tell. If you're getting the, uh, any equivalent of a cold shoulder. Mm -hmm. uh, what I would say considering that is to do that, look at your patient and see if you feel as the, the see what you feel as the interaction develops during the session. Meaning you have to be looking for it. Yes, and, and a lot of things are like that uh, regarding diagnosis in general, in medicine. You have to you have to have the, all the possibilities all sort of floating in your mind 
or, or we frequently uh, miss it. We call that uh, index of suspicion, if I'm not mistaken. The, the opposite is also true. And we have what we call availability bias, meaning we are more inclined to see things that are in your minds. And of course, it's worse with psychiatry because of our, resol our low resolution diagnosis and the overlap of symptoms. So if you have MDD in your mind, you're going to call everybody with generalized anxiety disorder with MDD and vice versa. If you have ADHD in your mind, you're going to call every JD person with ADHD, every kid that has that would meet criteria for generalized anxiety disorder. And we call that availability bias, which would be like, you're thinking too much of this and not considering the rest. Mm -hmm. And the index of suspicion would be the opposite. You, know, you, you have to think a little bit of everything so you can see it. And yes, that's what I'm saying. If you're looking for resentment, that's what I'm advising people. Go to the, to the office today and see your patients looking for resentment. But why, why resentment would lead to a presentation compatible with depression? Yeah, I was afraid of this one. Let's go. It was coming anyways. <laughs> so, so let's start at a very basic level and, and go from there. Okay, so think about your personal life. Think of a relationship. So you fail to do something like most of us do, you know, you're, or, or like most of us, you're a complete failure as a boyfriend or husband. And uh, at least in the eyes of your partner. Okay, so, so she's resentful towards you. Oh, man. All right. Let's do this thing. <laughs> so, so noticing that she's resentful is also admitting guilt. So you keep living life normally, like, ah, she's what's going on, right? Because if you say, are you mad at me? Then she's going to look at you and say, what do you think? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you got it. You're perfect. So, so let's make this story short. Your partner is resentful and as such, as be, your partner is resentful, he or she will not smile, will refuse to engage in any leisure activities you guys are doing, will refuse to enjoy anything, will refuse to have fun, may even refuse to eat or go th places or do things. Mm -hmm. Now, the message is, I am mad, can't you tell, right? Uh, now, it's easy to see that the one suffering the most, of course, is the resentful person, because you're there pretending everything's fine, right? But, but for different reasons, right? So s somehow this is an attempt to hurt you. Mm -hmm. If someone resentful refuses to enjoy, laugh, live life and do things, it's an effort to hurt because resent, resentment and anger are, you know, twin sisters. The, the, it's an effort to hurt you back. Mm -hmm. Now, because of the dynamic, I'm, I'm using she here, hopefully nobody gets offended. She cannot allow herself to enjoy anything or smile or be liked because if she does, she will likely be invalidated in her anger. Mm -hmm. But going from that to a presentation compatible with depression, I think it's a little too much. No? Oop, we'll get there. So, oh, all right. <laughs> now, okay, so now I'm going to jump to Freud. You see, Freud was a genius with a, and a very creative guy. Um, but, but some say, however, that he had only a handful of patients, at least compared to any mental health provider listening to this podcast nowadays, because now we work a lot more. And, but it's fair to assume that he dug deeper on each case, which, again, is not hard to entertain, considering our hectic lifestyle. But when Freud covered the concept of melancholia, hmm. he basically compared it to bereavement initially. And then he said, however, that the difference was that the loss was not necessarily the loss of someone, but of an, an ideal, which you, we could maybe understand as the loss of some state of affairs, even a promise. 
Now, what he noticed with patients with melancholia was that they seemed to derive some pleasure from belittling themselves by, you know, like saying bad things about themselves and say, I'm good for nothing and this and that. And, and, and finally, he poses that the thing those patients were attributing to themselves were, in fact, attributes of their lost object or lost ideal. So say a lady is raised with all the hopes a girl can have for a decent life, ends up ends up married to, you know, one of us, like complete, <laughs> the usual complete Wrong decisions. <laughs> yeah. So this stuff is 100 years plus ago, right? And her husband is not very smart, not very bright, not very kind. He's not very successful and is absolutely not romantic. Mm. So she ends up claiming that she's not very bright, that she's not very nothing, basically. That's, the, hmm. that's Freud's claim to melancholia. He says is, you, you have all this disappointment with an ideal, with a hope, with a state of affairs, but you cannot have that. So you interject that and you say that you are the piece of crap, right? Now, mm-hmm. um, you're going to say that I went from one stretch to another, and, and maybe I should not have used the, the same example twice, sort of, you know, the relationship part, but maybe. But I could have said that she had high expectations for an ideal of life. Given the reality of things, she would claim that wishing something like that is stupid and as such that she's stupid mm-hmm. or whatever, right? But be- be- just before you call 911 and ask them to bring a straight jacket <laughs> to me, can you see the similarity between those two situations? Uh, so, so the person would be resentful towards a lost ideal, towards life, or uh, yes. pretty much, right? Yes, and, and as our, our listeners know, mental health providers are, are representing the world in a therapy session, if not voluntarily, frequently as a consequence of transference. Now, this does not stop here, because if you go to PubMed or, 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 or EBSCO, as you call, uh, and make an advanced search for the terms resentment and depression, you'll find there's some interesting stuff that one is about a psychometric scale. It's called gratitude and resentment scale that suggests that one of the pillars of gratitude is not having too much perceived deprivation in life, which is stuff. Mm, it's, that, it's kind of obvious. Uh, deprivation would lead to resentment. There are studies uh, showing that resentment is a reliable predictor of uh, depression in uh, caregivers of family members with dementia. And there's another study uh, that found that resentment is inversely correlated with having a sense of purpose in life. And uh, one study found resentment to be associated with suicidality. And there's another one, sort of a replication from this one, or an, an expansion, found an association between resentment and emotional disturbance in general. And there was another one that was also that, that related to this, this pre- previous two that found that suicidal people have less social support and as such, they're more dependent on their social support and they're also more resentful towards these limited supports. Okay, I'm, I'm canceling the 911 call now. I appreciate <laughs> yeah. that. I'm not so, calling them. So, so what, what I'm trying to make, my point is that uh, we can just look at it and say, well, there's some research, all limitations of psychological research considered, that points towards resentment were you know the life circumstances that led to resentment as one of the many determining factors of uh, depressive like presentations if you if we can call depressive like presentations as opposed to call depression mm-hmm. um, and the reason I say that because we don't freaking know what depression is right uh, but we can also look at resentment and see how it plays on a very basic level and in that regard the the way 
it plays it's sort of as a statement okay you let me down and i'll not enjoy things anymore or try things anymore as if someone was saying that to life in a sense you know life let me down and now christmas means nothing to me anymore and the christmas thing is freaking people go through some rough patches and they say i hate the holidays right and they just can't enjoy it and 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 and, and I, you will not, and it for me is very hard from a, from a psychological, clinical, psychotherapeutic perspective, not to see that the patient is saying, hell no, I'm not enjoying things because of the way my life panned out. Now, you fail me, you have failed me, life, God, dreams, whatever. And, and on a more practical take and considering transference, meaning how a patient would transpose their feelings towards other people and things to the therapist, we are actually fairly good at reading emotions. And if our listeners now just just goes to work today with the mind open to this thing to see if he, he or she notices the patient being somewhat resentful towards him or, or her during the, the work. Uh, and do, do you think that's frequent? Oh, yeah. And, and you know me. For the most part, I don't like to claim empirical evidence or my experience as a provider or the experiences of folks I work with or supervise. But yes, unfortunately, is a very frequent tale. And how do you handle it then? I think, uh, I think you know, psychotherapy, right? Don't, the hopes that a long history of resentment towards life and uh, the, the, the crushed dreams would respond magnificently to an antidepressant is a bit too much. Mm -hmm. But okay, antidepressants may help. Um, but I think the first step is help the patient to see it, right? To become, that's pretty much the first step of psychotherapy always is to have, help people become aware of things. Um, you know, or in other words, it's finding the truth about stuff um, because how essential it is to know the truth for the psychotherapeutic process and success. And, and then ideally the therapy would move towards the patient acknowledging his roles on the on the on his role in the failures and, and broken dreams and because um, if we don't if you look to a problem in psychotherapy as this happened to me then there's nothing that can be done so even from a pragmatic perspective you have to describe problems in this in in where i was responsible for 10 percent to you gotta look what you did that led it's not about guilt, it's about responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. So then ideally the therapy um, would do that. And, and then as you do that more and more, the patient is closer and closer you mean, to being sort of set free of whatever hampers, hampers his life and, and movement. Right. Interesting. Okay. Uh, are we looking at a part four for this subject, maybe? I still don't know. I <laughs> have a few things that I thought we could discuss here or elsewhere. Um, one conversation, if you remember, we had the other day when I was trying to elaborate a concept for you. I just don't think that's enough for a, an episode, so we could just cover it quickly here. Um, when, um, if you remember, I was telling you that someone who has experienced, let's make start with my usual analogies. If I have migraines, like ter terrific migraines, then any small headache will make me very, very anxious. Because I'll think, okay, this is this is what's going on now. Two days laying down in bed. If I have bad asthma attacks, any shortness of breath, running a flight of stairs will make me freak out. If I have seizures, any funny sensation that could possibly resemble uh, 
of uh, aura of an episode will make me very anxious because I know my day is ruined, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to come back and I know what's happening and stuff like that. And when I was talking to you about it, I said, well, anyone who experienced very bad low mood in their lives or have very bad or panic attacks for that matter um, may respond with a lot of anxiety to any small fluctuations in mood mm. or small fluctuations in anxiety. So it's like I'm, I'm anxious about being anxious, right? And when I say that to you, say, well, it's like a PTSD of a psychiatric diagnosis. It's a PTSD of having, it's like a post-traumatic stress disorder of having a mood disorder. And say, exactly. Now, that happens a lot. Why? Because once you start going through psychiatric care, it's a freaking, it's a freaking career. It's, and it's difficult to convince people to say, all right, I'm, stop the meds and now you can go about your life if you ever need to come back. Now, people want to stay because they're afraid of going through that stuff again. And, um, and as such, they keep coming and you have the follow-ups to make sure everything is fine. And the patients come back and they say, well, I had two days where I was very anxious mm-hmm. by whatever reason. And they, on top of being anxious by whatever reasons, they are also, the, the anxiety is amplified by feeling the anxiety. It's like I'm afraid of being afraid or I'm, I'm freaking out. I'm afraid of being depressed. And you, we know the overlap of anxiety and depression is very frequent. But there's no new episode happening. There's no new episode happening at all. It's not like a continued persistent anxiety going on. It's just this periodic bouts of anxiety as a response to anxiety that is a response to life events. We all feel anxious every so often. So I, I found brilliant when you said, oh, this is like a PTSD of having a psychiatric diagnosis. It's exactly, <laughs> it's exactly the same mechanism. It triggers all those memories and all those reactions. And as such, people keep presenting and reporting persistence of these bouts of low mood that last one or two days, bouts of low mood that last a few, or of anxiety that last a few days. And, and of course, you just, what do you do with that? You have to normalize the experience. You have to tell the patient. First, we covered that already. Don't buy that is coming out of the blue. You got to ask the patient, say, okay, where is this thing coming from? You know, what is going on? And then you can go an extra step and say, were you afraid that you're going to go through one of those waves where you just stay in the bad spot for the longest time? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, slowly you, again, it's not a matter of more meds. I truly doubt there's a lack of medication in this country at this point. I think we're all, uh, you know, uh, the fish must be swimming on them. Um, but... Um, it's really a matter of improving self-awareness and helping patients to identify life events leading to fluctuations in mood and anxiety. And those life events we already spoke about, they could be just boredom, it could be just lack of purpose, lack of fun, lack of novelty. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, p- prevent further, further harm with meds and instead help the patient to kind of discriminate what is what and kind of a, uh, continue to expose him, him or herself to life as, as it comes. I think this is a good uh, spot for us to wrap it up. So I would like to thank everyone uh, for bearing with us during all of these three episodes. And also, as a reminder, if you want to give us some feedbacks on the, on the podcast or even send us any ideas for topics that we can develop here, uh, you can send an email uh, to info at nepmi.org and we will gladly receive your 
uh, message, right, Dr. Nadi? Absolutely. Always looking for suggestions of topics and also interesting people to interview. We have a lined up a, a sequence of a very interesting folks. Pretty, I like this word, mavericks. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking forward to uh, airing those interviews. Amazing. Dr. Nadi, see you again next week. I'll be there. This podcast was offered by NEPMI.org.